Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 116. How can we imagine the unimaginable, namely future worlds beyond the domination of the present, its logic, its politics? What might life look like beyond the many ends portrayed in pop culture, dystopian sci-fi, climate science, and more? How can we play a role more than mere witnesses to this cascading of catastrophes? Those are some of the questions that our guest today, TJ Demos, takes on in his new book, Radical Futurisms, Ecologies of Collapse, Chronopolitics, and Justice to Come. I'm so excited to be having this conversation and sharing it with you. Many of you know that I've become interested in, or maybe you don't, I don't know, but <laughs> I've become interested in... You know, uh, therapy is a long history of like turning towards the past. I've become interested in, you know, Michael White once said that if people are going to enter into some form of liminal space, we should, you know, help them with predictions, give, help them with the predictions of some experiences they might have in that effort of entering into liminal space. And so I've become quite interested in how do we compose in the future? How do we world make? How do we how do we work with the future in therapy? And so I've been turning to some people out. Many of you know that I don't. I find my inspiration outside of uh, you know traditional therapy world. I I look at you know visual culture and new media and aesthetic practices and social movement formation stuff. And um, for that's where I kind of find my inspiration. And this is an example of that. TJ Demos is somebody that I look to in thinking and thinking about the future, but also doing more than just thinking about the future, trying to compose something outside of the future. And there's other people like Theo Ellison and uh, Renata, Renata Sezik, I think I'm saying that right. But um, anyway, so, and if you're interested in some of the work I'm doing around the future on the Radical Therapist YouTube channel, I do have a video up. If you go back a little bit, call, I did a presentation for Taos Institute on uh, Futuring the Present is its title. And you can get kind of see some of my emerging ideas and how I'm thinking about it, that kind of thing. If you are interested as well in helping people as they move into liminal space, because really that's what we're all doing, right? And this is, and we're at, we're at, uh, it can be argued that we're all in kind of some version of liminal space in this moment of this, of our world. And so p having people like TJ Demos is great on the, on the podcast and, and can kind of help us point the way and, and actually do some real stuff. So anyway, um, excuse me, before I get to TJ demos, um, one quick announcement, I am going to be at the printed matter, Los Angeles art book fair, uh, on August 10th through the 13th. It's at the museum of contemporary art in Los Angeles. I'm going to be hanging out with the thick press folk. We're going to be doing, uh, you know, promoting our upcoming radical, you know, encyclopedia of radical helping. And I'm going to be, I'm going to have some swag, some radical therapist swag. So if you're in the area, come visit me at uh, the art at the LA Printed Matter Art Book Fair. And rumor has it, I'm going to actually have uh, a couple of copies of the sold out, our sold out book emerging project, Justine Diarago and myself. We did a book emerging project with Thick Press titled. Beyond Critique, Composition, and Curiosity in Therapy. And 
it sold out, which was great. Thank you for that, everybody. Um, but also, there's going to be, I think they're going to print some additional uh, issues. So if you'd like to pick up one of those, you're going to have to come to the to the book fair, the LA uh, Printed Matter Art Book Fair. So uh, I'm sure I'll say more of that in the future. But mark your calendars. If you're in the area, if you're in the Southern California area, maybe think about coming out there and coming and see me. And I'm sure I'm going to have some Radical Therapist t-shirts or stickers, stuff like that. So it'd be great to see you if you can make it. Okay, let's get to our guest. So TJ Demos is the Patricia and Roland Rebel Lee Endowed Chair in Art History in the Department of the History of Art and Visual Culture at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and founding director of its Center for Creative Ecologies. Demos is the author of several books, including Against the Anthropocene, Visual Culture and Environment Today, Decolonizing Nature, Contemporary Art and the Politics of Ecology, The Migrant Image, The Art and Politics of Documentary During Global Crisis, uh, Return to the Post-Colony, Specters of Colonialism and Contemporary Art, and he recently co-edited The the Rutledge Companion on Contemporary Art, Visual Culture and Climate Change. He was a Getty Research Institute Fellow. Uh, he's directed the Mellon-funded Sawyer Seminar Research Project, Beyond the End of the World. And Demos was chair and chief curator of the Climate Collective, providing public programming related to the 2021 Climate Emergency Over Emergence Program at the Museum of Art, Architecture, and Technology in Lisbon. His new book, Radical Futurisms, Ecologies of Collapse, Chronopolitics, and Justice to Come, is now out from Sternberg Press. Let's meet TJ. Hi, TJ. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Yeah, I, I appreciate your time. I, I, I know you probably were curious when a therapist and a therapy podcast reached out to you and like, you know, why do they want to talk to me? And, and uh, you know, the reason is, is uh, I've read a couple of your books now and I, I've become very interested in how we work with folks regarding the future. Um you know, that, uh, you know, a, ther- a lot of therapy, you, you know, you make some assumptions that it's all about the past, but I think a lot of people, I'm forgetting his name, he's a UK psychoanalyst, said most people come to therapy, you know, t- wanting to talk about experiences they haven't had yet. And um, and so I've become very interested in like speculative futures and how do we work with that in therapy, but also I've become very interested, I've been very influenced by the work of Bruno Latour and his couple of essays he's written, primarily why his critique run out of steam and a composition manifesto and, you know, how do we, and you reference a couple of folks, I'm thinking of Jonas Stahl, where you quote him as saying, progressive politics and artists tend to deconstruct, analyze and critique, which is all very important. But understanding why something is wrong does not necessarily change it, and and I think we're kind of in that place. We're all we've all gotten really good at critique, but um, composition maybe not so much. And I, and that's why I really like your work because I think it points to a lot of different um, projects, et cetera, that are trying to, you know, imagine new futures and that kind of thing. So that's why I reached out to you. But maybe my, my first question for you is, in Radical Futurisms, your new book, um, you, you state that we are living at the end of democracy, liberalism, capitalism, a, a cool planet, civilization as we know it. And the point to, and the point to recent experimental visual culture, newbie expressions and aesthetic practices and social formations 
as showing the way to a post-capitalist horizon of collective emancipation. And I guess I want to start by what are some of the projects you highlight that stand out to you in this effort of imagining new futures? Sure. Uh, well, as someone who's uh, coming from the arts and culture, um, I'm trained in art history and visual cultural analysis. I'm really interested in artistic projects uh, where artists and cultural practitioners more broadly, as well as activists uh, affiliated with social movements are thinking about um, the emancipatory uh, future, ways of uh, escaping from the dominant condition of oppression that ultimately stems from uh, what I argue is uh, racial and colonial capitalism and, and, its, and its legacy, its long legacies and its um, uh, imposed futures. So um, I'm looking closely at indigenous futurisms um, and uh, Afrofuturisms and eco-socialist futurisms. Uh, the more research I've done in preparation for the book, I've, I've discovered uh, so many um, really uh, intriguing and compelling practices of thinking about futurity. Uh, it's really something that's being uh, done and practiced internationally uh, with lots of uh, artists. Uh, so, so some of the ones that I'm looking closely at, um, TJ Cuthand is one, an indigiqueer uh, filmmaker based in Toronto, who's done this amazing short film called Reclamation, which imagines what if uh, settler colonial people actually left Earth and went to Mars um, and left a broken planet to indigenous survivors? What would life be like? Uh, and what would uh, decolonization look like under those terms? Um, or there's an um, African-American collective based in Philadelphia called Black Quantum Futurism, um, and they do a lot of filmmaking and music. Um, uh, More Mother is one of their members, uh, Kame Ayewa, and they also have a community futures lab that they've run in North Philadelphia, where they're drawing on Afro-diasporic traditions of uh, imagining time in all sorts of different ways that are opposed to, say, um, what they call the master's clockwork universe. Um, in other words, it's trying to escape from the conditions of the racialization of temporality and the way that uh, they argue black people and people of color more broadly get stuck into these temporal um, uh, traps and um, oppressive uh, encasements. So how can they draw on Afro-diasporic uh, alternatives to dominant uh, notions of time, um, but also look, how can they look at like um, advanced technological approaches to temporality, like for instance, uh, quantum field theory. So they're bringing together um, really heterogeneous understandings of time and it turns out there's lots of different ways to understand time. There's no single dominant um, uh, understanding, even if that is the one that we're uh, mostly uh, subjected to. Um, for instance, just the, the hourly um, time measurements that capital imposes on us, uh, that measures everything in terms of um, uh, a very uh, rigid model of time that uh, is equated with economic value. Mm -hmm. So um, there's lots more artists. Um, Jonas Stahl, you mentioned, um, Jean Van Heswick uh, are doing trainings for the future, um, which invite artists and collectives to get together and think about different ways of uh, imagining uh, emancipatory temporality and also beginning to practice it collectively in what they call rehearsing uh, for uh, uh, freedom uh, in the future. Yeah. 
and I'm going to ask you about those projects, but you did mention time and your book, you, you, um, you do go into detail on chronopolitics and, um, and you write that a radical, radical futurisms remake time, they de-essentialize time and they de-normalize time. And I wonder if you could say more about that. Sure. Uh, as we know, we are, um, and as I mentioned before, we're, we're, we live with this time that um, that we're subjected to, this uh, linear chronology, where we understand time is um, something that, uh, where one thing happens in the present, fades into the past, we look forward to a future. Um, as we move through this spectrum of progress and development, um, and this is something that um, has been the site of lots of struggle in the past in terms of, for instance, how we measure time uh, and how we value it. So like the struggle over the working day um, or um, the working life, at what age should, um, should retirement occur? Uh, what can we expect from, and, uh, from, our, uh, from our activities on a daily basis? How do we measure them? All of this involves a kind of what we could call capital's calculative machinery. Um, and it is, uh, extends from um, sites of class struggle in the past. Uh, Marx's book on, on capital has a, 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 a substantial chapter on the class struggle over the working day that's really interesting, especially if we think today about what um, artificial intelligence or AI is proposing uh, in relationship to labor and ways of increasing the oppressive uh, domination of uh, workers' hourly productivity. This is something that's really, you know, a lot of people are thinking about today, but it also comes out of anti-slavery struggles, anti-colonial struggles, and the way, for instance, indigenous peoples, for instance, in the, uh, in the California context, were subjected to um, the Spanish mis mission system's imposition of temporality according to the clock time uh, that was measured and, uh, and uh, labor had to conform to those expectations. Mm. Um, so this is the dominant understanding of temporality uh, that lots of the artists and practitioners that I'm looking at are trying to struggle against, whether that's in terms of um, uh, giving a new kind of value to um, seasonal time, to uh, the time of, uh, the, of the natural cycles that correspond to uh, the requirements of agricultural labor, for instance, and society's reproduction at the most elemental levels of production of food, or whether it's mythical time or cosmological time in relation to traditional communities, or um, say Afro-diasporic traditions, like black quantum futurism is really interested in the Dogon of Mali. They have a really rich uh, cosmological, uh, mythological system um, that, they're, uh, that they're interested in that is also involves thinking about uh, the, past, the deep past and the future um, in, in terms of uh, their own um, uh, system of, of uh, thinking and, and their worldview. There's ways of thinking about anti-racist time. I mentioned quantum time, where the idea of linear progressivity is challenged by people like Niels Bohr and, and other theorists of quantum temporality, um, such that we can you know, actually document now through empirical scientific research, uh, the fact that um, uh, energy uh, operates in all sorts of ways that is not uh, standardized and measurable, but actually sometimes slows down, sometimes speeds up. There's uh, uh, processes like retrocausality, 
um, uh, where something can exist in two different times at the same right. at the same time. Right. I mean, there's fascinating stuff that goes way beyond my understanding as <laughs> as a non scientific researcher. And then there's also ecological time, which is really important um, in combating the kind of temporal trajectory of, uh, say, fossil fuel capitalism. So those are these are just the the um, entrance points into lots of complex ways of understanding temporality and, and heterogeneous uh, uh, forms. That's wonderful. Yeah. You also write the futurisms are radical because they grow out of the tradition of the oppressed. I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, the tradition of the oppressed is an important term in my book, and it's one that I draw on from uh, the German-Jewish philosopher Walter Benjamin, uh, who used that phrase uh, in his work, uh, where he wrote in the face of German Nazism uh, that part of the struggle against fascism was necessarily a struggle against um, historiography or fascist ways of conceiving history. And what he had in mind there was the idea that somehow German Nazism was the inevitable culmination of the past, as if all um, historical trajectories lead to this triumphant um, understanding of uh, the present political circumstances. Um, and it's exactly that kind of ineluctable historical progression that Benjamin was trying to write against. And, and he said, in the face of fascism, we need to uh, reinvent um, uh, a radical understanding of, of history. It's not what many people would, um, would think of in the face of uh, this genocidal violent regime. But as a historian, that's one thing that he was trying to contribute. Like, how can we dig deep into the way culture is constructed and along with it politics in relationship to time itself? Um, so he said, he, his argument ultimately was that we need to um, think more about and ground ourselves within the tradition of the oppressed. Um, in other words, those who are most subjected to forms of state violence, for instance, um, uh, oppression, and uh, who are disenfranchised and, ex and excluded sometimes in you know, brutal, industrialized, exterminationist ways. Like these, this is, these are the traditions that we need to, to hold dear in order to think about and invent uh, ways of uh, going to the roots of things in terms of a radical account of temporality. So um, in terms of radical futurisms, uh, the, the radical is a, a key word also. And this term is multivalent. Um, I draw on Angela Davis, uh, the, the black radical thinker, uh, who's also affiliated with uh, UCSC where I, where I teach. And she defines radical as going to the roots. Um, and what she means is it's got to be anti-systemic. It can't just be a superficial analysis of the conditions of power and oppression. It has to go to, to the structural roots of things. And it's got to be um, in going to the roots. It has, there has to be an ecological element. Um, so I'm trying to draw on, on these two ideas, plus lots, lots more uh, uh, references, including, for instance, the way uh, the literary theorist um, and Marxist uh, philosopher Frederick Jameson talks about the future as disruption, like the, the notion of a future that is different substantially from the present can't just be conceived of as the present as it is extended infinitely mm -hmm. into worlds to come. It has to be fundamentally different if it's uh, a future that is actually worthy of the name. 
Um, and so he, his proposal in his book, Archaeologies of the Future, is to conceive of the future as disruption. In other words, structurally, economically, and politically different from the present of uh, uh, basically the dominant economic and political regime, which is capitalism. So Jameson is really interested in uh, theorizing that, and that really, um, I found that really uh, beneficial and fruitful within my analysis. And then, and then finally, there's the black radical tradition, mm -hmm. which is coming out of uh, people like Cedric Robinson, who wrote a book, an important book called Black Marxism, looking at figures like W.E.B. Du Bois and C.L.R. James and Richard Wright and others. Robin Kelly is another figure associated with this. This is a really important tradition of radical uh, approaches to not only present politics, but also um, his, the historical foundations of emancipation, and by extension, um, the, um, the possibilities for imagining a future otherwise. So th there's lots more, but um, <clears throat> you know, radical futurism turns out to be a, a really uh, complex um, and, and rich uh, nexus of, uh, of traditions of, of critical thinking right. and also emancipatory, anti-racist, anti-capitalist uh, practice. Okay, you also uh, kind of compare radical futurism to extractive futurism. Can you share what the difference is there? Well, extraction, in my understanding, uh, is defined by a, a one-way withdrawal of value uh, from uh, sites of, uh, of resource wealth. Um, so that can involve commodifying nature um, and mining it for uh, all available value um, or mining, uh, extracting labor or culture or time. Um, and generally, it's, it's, I, I think of it as a one-way withdrawal that is appropriating value, even if it does give back, but what it gives back generally is pollution mm. or, or negative forms of value, exhaustion, um, uh, damage, environmental destruction. So um, radical futurism is, I think, defined in my analysis as an anti-extractive uh, relationality. So instead of that one-way withdrawal of value, it's a um, relationality of care that's founded ultimately on uh, solidarity. Solidarity is a term that is really important, obviously within political struggles, uh, but it doesn't really get talked about a lot or theorized within uh, art, the art world context. Right. And I think one reason for that is because uh, art, the artistic domain is so uh, has been so utterly defined by competitive individualism um, that practices of solidarity are almost non-existent, uh, except if you look at the periphery of artistic practices when it comes to um, collectivization and forms of collaboration that don't often get recognized um, by dominant institutions within the art system. So solidarity means um, according to groups like um, like the Debt Collective, they're currently working to uh, push for the abolition of student debt, um, but also medical debt um, and all forms of indebtedness. Uh, according to the Debt Collective, solidarity is, is defined by the socialization of vulnerability. Um, and I, that's, a, I think, a really beautiful way to understand it. In other words, rather than privatizing and individualizing risk, 
which we know this is how we're supposed right. to think about it. Right. Um, what are the ways, whether it's through mutual aid um, or you know a caring economy, how can we socialize vulnerability so that we get each other's backs and um, we're, we're um, empowering community values? Um, this is the kind of um, antidote to extractivism as I see it, which means um, relationality is a two-way street. It's giving back, it's standing with, contributing to the common good and not dedicated to endlessly uh, building private assets. Great. And in Radical Futurisms, you also spotlight uh, Jonas Stahl and Florian Malzacher's training for the future. And I think you said Jenny Van Heswick. Did I say that right? Jonathan Heswick. Jonathan yeah. Heswick. Uh, trainings for the Not Yet. Both projects are participatory gatherings where people practice futures together. And I guess I'm I'm curious what could... There, I was thinking therapists, but also what can we glean from these projects when working with folks exploring possible futures? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's lots to look at because these both of the projects you mentioned uh, are, are themselves um, like uh, assemblages of collectives. So we could do a detailed analysis of all of the different contributions that took place over these um, these events that, um, in the case of Stalin, Malzacher went for a few days, but in Heswick's practice, this was like a few months of gatherings um, and trainings. So there's there's lots of specific analysis, but I, I thought I'd focus on this term "not yet" because I think it's really interesting. Right. Um, because it, what it, what it, what they're trying to cultivate here is um, what I would refer to as the agency of the "not yet," um, meaning. Um, what happens when we recognize, um, as Jonathan Heswick argues, we need to, um, that we need to train for a different future, but ultimately we don't actually know what that future will be. We have some idea of it. Uh, we know, you know, the, some of the dominant, the main, the main problems of the present and the harms and violence and traumas that they cause. Um, but when it comes to actually defining what an emancipated future will be, uh, we can't really know, um, and and this is this is partly because there's a there's a, a, a philosophical problem that's referred to as an identity problem, right? The the we of the present, the collective agency of the present, or we could break that down in, even into individuals of the present, um, are part of a collect the productive of, the production of collective ima uh, imagination, but that is done so as we know it's based on present conditions of trauma, of violence, of ex the experience of what life is like under the terms of uh, racial and colonial capitalism. But it's that's distinct from a future we or future uh, subjectivity of emancipated futurity, meaning that we in the present have to be open to a future of difference uh, that we can't ultimately fully know or experience. Um, so what does it mean to uh, think of subjectivity as um, bearing an openness to non-knowingness? Mm -hmm. um, how can we come to terms with the fact that uh, we can't know everything, um, even as we struggle against the real knowns of present violence and harm? I think that like this is a really interesting test case of, mm -hmm. of how we can think about um, training for a future um, when part of that training has to be uh, the, the practical and 
um, speculative and even psychological elements of learning uh, and coming to terms with our own non-knowingness. Um, I, I, I think that's that could be an interesting um, point of discussion within uh, psychology. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned solidarity, and maybe now we start maybe talking about practices of, you know, go, moving into the future. It can be argued we live in a time of particularity over solidarity, and you write about liberal identity politics as a block to solidarity and radical futurism, and I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yes. Um, uh, liberal identity politics turns out to be something that I'm really concerned with uh, and critical of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that this is actually a, a real um, uh, barrier to practices of solidarity, which in my understanding really must be uh, forms of solidarity across difference, meaning multiracial solidarity, solidarity across gender and sexual divides as as well. Um, The problem is that these days there's increasing um, uh, movement and energy around forms of group belonging uh, based on shared identity. Um, but that tends to lead toward increasing exclusive separatism or, or divisions between people. And it blocks the politics of solidarity uh, because it's, it's uh, dedicated to um, uh, the particularities of, of identity, whether it's um, African-American women organizing together or, um, or uh, working class white people organizing together. Um, this may be... Um, understandable and necessary on a certain level, but it can't be, I think, the end point. Really, we desperately need forms of organization and solidarity across uh, these notions of of difference. Hmm. Part of the problem with liberal formations of identitarianism is that it's directed at uplift, but uh, we have to ask uplift into what? Um, If we follow someone like Cornel West, he's saying that this basically... Uh, reproduces systems of oppression, uh, e- even if it puts what he says black faces in high places. But ultimately, it doesn't change anything except bettering the lives of a select few or a select elite. And here, a really good book on this topic I found is um, Olufemi Taiwo's Elite Capture. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. He gets yeah. into exactly these these problems. Mm-hmm. So at worst. Um, Worse, worse than liberal identitarianism is fascist reactionary formations, like those based on um, the so-called great replacement theory, as mm. if uh, there's a white genocide happening, um, leading to groups like Identity Europa, uh, which was born in San Jose, or the Proud Boys or neo-Nazis um, that are explicitly racist and anti-migrant and leading toward an exterminationist politics because they can ultimately deal with, think about, or tolerate the other, um, the, the you know, figures um, that are different from them uh, based on identitarian terms. So identity, in this sense, means something like white supremacy, uh, which we have to recognize, I argue, and this is by no means new. People like W.B. Du Bois knew this uh, 100, 100 years ago. Uh, white supremacy is an effective ruling class power, which offers a racial point of identification uh, in whiteness that ends up obscuring class differences and which prevents multiracial solidarity. 
Um, so Du Bois talks about the problems of uh, during Reconstruction when uh, there was a failure of solidarity between white working class um, workers and um, newly emancipated black workers because of racialization that got in the way of solidarity hmm. that ended up allowing racism um, and ruling class power to continue uh, uninterrupted. So I, I find that it's extremely disempowering to the left um, and leads to um, you know, cycles of greater oppression and harm and trauma, uh, even producing more impulses to find places of res refuge, ironically, within the terms of identity. Like mm -hmm. this is kind of the bind that we're in. Mm -hmm. um, another book that I find really useful is Assad Haider's uh, Mistaken Identity, where he looks closely at the problem of identity itself um, in relationship to political struggles. Uh, and Assad Haider wrote that book in Santa Cruz uh, when he was doing his doctorate uh, at UCSC, actually. So <laughs> it's really, really interesting. So um, if the left um, is ever to empower itself to win, I, I argue as part of radical futurisms that this will take a multiracial working class struggle, ultimately meaning working across differences. Mm -hmm. uh, so we could, I, I, I quote Alicia Garza at one point, this is one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, who said um, in her manifesto for, for BLM, she said, when black women get free, everyone gets free. And I think that principle is, is really crucial to recognize um, that when systems of oppression that don't necessarily um, uh, uh, at least superficially affect people who are not part of that, um, that, um, that class of the victimized, um, actually does harm culture more broadly. Um, so it's not that um, those of us who are white should recognize and assist in Black Lives Matter struggles because it somehow our, um, our uh, ethical uh, responsibility because we want um, to help those who are disadvantaged. It's rather because systems of, of racist oppression also harm ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, it prevents the fulfillment of human relationships. It creates all, all sorts of um, uh, you know, violent traumatic effects in us. It, it debilit debilitates political struggles that are based that could otherwise be based on multiracial solidarity. There's all sorts of ways that this is harmful to all people. And so I, I love this phrase, you know, when those who are the most depressed get free, it's only then that everyone else will be free. And until then, we can't consider ourselves um, free or emancipated at all. In fact, uh, our freedom or the freedom of some cannot be based on the uh, oppression of others. So it's this kind of thinking and imagining that uh, radical futurisms help to make possible. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think you touch, you touch on this in the book, but yeah, I mean, it, these are hard times we're in right now. I think we can all agree. And it's easy to, um, want to quit for example. Right. But I, I, I'm wondering how do we defeat this fatalistic nihilism in these times? It's, it's a, it's a critical urgent question to ask. Um, and I see it, I see this, uh, this nihilism or this temptation uh, toward giving up or, you know, just not knowing what we can possibly do right. um, and being so stickened by how things are going um, and faced with the difficulties of, of 
knowing how to intervene in any kind of meaningful way indeed leads to a kind of um, potential uh, defeatism. I see this in my students, in my, in my classes and, and lectures, talking to people, in my activism. Uh, it's, it, it indeed is extremely difficult. And I ultimately, I don't know uh, what will change this. Um, what, I, what I do argue and what I think is, is there for us to, to build on, uh, although necessarily is part of a long struggle, this is not something that can be uh, shifted or, or turned around immediately, but the, the answer I think is organizing. Uh, becoming involved in organizations uh, and doing the groundwork uh, to build um, communities, to educate ourselves, to learn the lessons of the past, and to practice solidarity, uh, which necessarily needs to happen at the speed of trust um, in order to combat these forces of increased depression, of economic disempowerment, impoverishment, um, political disenfranchisement. And now, uh, as I mentioned before, um, you know, social media alienation and, and AI fascism, mm. the way AI is, you know, um, basically doubling down on the technology of uh, regimenting temporality through, for instance, recommendation algorithms and the what some people talk about is the disciplining of risk so that um, if algorithms can accurately predict the near future um, and thereby make it profitable for some, uh, this is effectively a way to uh, eliminate uh, contingency and, and get rid of um, possibility in the name of probability. Uh, so so um, an interesting book here is Dan McQuillan's Anti-Fascist AI mm. um, and how we can think about um, different approaches to technology where ultimately it, we need to examine the whole so social structure of our society. Um, as long as we have basically billionaires and corporations uh, in charge of framing and defining uh, and producing the technology, well, it's not going to be surprising that we'll see it work ultimately in their favor. So um, I think organizing, getting involved politically, um, transforming our education, transforming the media, moving away from a corporate dominated system where everything, uh, including lives, values, culture, politics, and time is dedicated to the production of profit beyond, you know, before anything else. This is ultimately the problem. So, the, you know, it's a, it's an old question. How do we defeat capitalism ultimately? Because capitalism is, is serving the interests of those who are uh, the few and the elite, not at all the, the well-being and welfare of the many. Um, even though capitalism itself is always transforming and <clears throat> entering into new technological modalities these days. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think this is this is what I try to argue when I'm asked this question, and I get it. I get asked this a lot. Like, what can we do? Uh, organize really, um, and, and that's no simple thing. It, it involves all sorts of, of difficulties. Like, how do we organize? How can we organize like across generations, right, right. as well as um, cross racially? Uh, how can we get rid of authoritarian <clears throat> um, uh, impulses? How can we do the work at the subjective level of uh, addressing our own relations to um, sometimes that get internalized of 
of violence and authoritarianism, of, uh, of patriarchy, of other forms of uh, sexual violence. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's what we need to do. Unfortunately, we don't have like the billions of resources that uh, ruling class interests have. So it's definitely a struggle, but it's always been a struggle. We've defeated fascism in the past. I think that remains the challenge today. Right. You have me thinking. One pre- previous guest on my podcast talked about, I, you know, not wanting to be a part of a movement that didn't include grandparents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think that's an important, and I, I've, that's always stuck with me because I think we've moved so far away from that. Now, how can we, how can we go back to that? What you've been speaking of, that kind of relationality across generations, across difference, across all that. Yeah. How can absolutely. we build those coalitions, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, they need to be built, exactly. Yeah. Um, decolonizing the future, what do we do? Um, <laughs> this this term, uh, decolonizing, is uh, an important one. I've, I've written about this in past publications, like decolonizing nature. Um, for me, decolonization is um, a term that's defined uh, by indigenous peoples in the Americas who have addressed this from the perspective of the colonized. So for them, um, the dominant way to understand decolonization is it means the return of land and sovereignty to indigenous peoples. Uh, So meaning changing the conditions of colonial capitalism and its regime of private property. Um, So uh, it extends out from there. You know, once we're talking about decolonizing land, well, what does that mean in terms of education? How can we think about private property in critical ways? How can we think about decolonizing the mind or the or language or the university, right? It's, it's, it's so, it turns out colonization or coloniality is so rife um, within dominant culture um, that it's crucial to examine all aspects of this. And there's massive uh, attempts to do so across all disciplines and, and fields in my experience. So recently there's been a move away from the term post-colonial to decolonial, which is, I think is significant in relationship to think about temporality. Post-colonial suggested, at least according to some, that uh, even if it was just a connotation, that colonialism was in the past Mm -hmm. and that it's possible to reach a post-colonial state. And indeed, some states in the global south, like, for instance, India or Latin America, um, have entered into a post-colonial political system. Um, Decolonial is more of an acknowledgement that, well, colonialism never ended. We're still actually living with it. Even if some states have gained formal independence, they're still dominated economically and politically by um, a Western Euro-American hegemony. So colonialism has never really ended. Um, So to decolonize is um, not so much a a discrete historical event, but an ongoing process. Mm. I like what um, Nick Estes, who's um, uh, uh, an indigenous member of the Lower Brule Sioux tribe and part of the Red Nation, which is a really important radical indigenous collective um, based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, And he points out that, you know, we could start this idea of decolonize, decolonization uh, of land through looking at extreme cases of wealth inequality. For instance, he points out that Ted Turner, 
uh, the media mogul, owns approximately 200,000 acres of Sioux Treaty territory alone. Um, and he has the largest privately owned buffalo herd uh, in the world. So um, Nick Estes suggests that we could begin with land transfers, uh, with the material redistribution of wealth, uh, moving toward economic and political systems dedicated, again, to the well-being of the most oppressed and those who are <clears throat> colonized, rather than prioritizing the wealth of the few. So I think this is, this is the, the idea. Um, uh, to me, that suggests that we can't think of decolonization simply in terms of uh, symbolic um, declarations of solidarity with, um, with these kinds of projects. Rather, we have to examine, like, well, what would it mean actually to uh, materially redistribute wealth and move away from the profound levels of economic inequality that exist today? Hmm. I teach in a university, the University of California, well, which is <clears throat> in some ways um, experiencing for uh, the last few decades, the gradual neoliberalization of education. So that question comes up for me in relationship to uh, the university. Like how can we start to address conditions of academic precarity, of the adjunctification of academia, you know, hiring part-time laborers who don't have healthcare benefits or, or economic security, how can we start to look at the, the hierarchical structure of the university? Where does it invest its money? Um, it turns out that um, University of California uh, has asset managers that invests in things like the commodification of housing that's driving unaffordability, even in Santa Cruz, uh, housing unaffordability. So how can we, what does it mean for me as an academic to be part of that system where my pension funds are actually going into um, uh, the financialization, or we could say the colonization of land through, uh, through housing, through commodifying housing. What can we do? What kind of organizing can we do within the university? This is a really crucial question um, that I've been asking and been part of in terms of community organizing uh, within the University of California for the last few years. It's part of the grad UC worker strike that happened last fall. Um, so these are practical ways of um, of addressing, you know, how can we each contribute to this, uh, this idea of decolonizing the future um, that is premised on the return of land and sovereignty to indigenous peoples, but not just that, right? Obviously, this needs to be about the overturning of the conditions of, uh, of colonial capitalism. So, you know, small steps can get us there. And this is the hard work of organizing, building solidarity and challenging entrenched systems of power with massive resources, uh, which is no easy thing to do. But I think um, we have to continue to have these conversations, develop strategies, do the work of organizing, build solidarity. It's the only way, even if um, uh, it's indeed hard to be uh, hopeful that things will change anytime soon. Yeah. Okay, just a couple more questions. Um... You write about, this is interesting to me, you write about putting our subjectivity at risk. Um, you know, what does that look like? And, you know, what are the possibilities there? Um, <clears throat> well, I mentioned um, um, overcoming identitarianism, for instance. 
And this in recognition of the, of the dangers and risks of liberal identitarianism um, and um, you know, fascist movements toward uh, identity. Um, and speaking to someone who is um, a, you know, straight white male, um, there's lots of critical, difficult thinking that, um, that, that needs to be done in terms of my own relation, for instance, to whiteness, to masculinity, at times when these identity categories are being reclaimed and exploited by the right mm. in all sorts of dangerous uh, ways that are racist, that are um, sexist, that are oppressive. Um, and we see this uh, gaining increased political legitimacy within, you know, the Trump um, phenomenon that, that uh, despite our own rational expectations and, um, and critical observations continues to develop even, even though um, it seems just absolutely um, wild against common sense. <laughs> Yeah, so that means for me, um, really, uh, a process of disidentification, of, of recognizing the dangers of uh, of white supremacy, of looking at whiteness historically, of thinking about it in the present and the future, and disidentifying from it in ways that um, I, I think back uh, to people like Franz Fanon, the, the, the radical uh, psychoanalyst that, who worked with the Algerian revolution against fr French colonization. He talked about things like being a race trader or a class trader. Um, I think ultimately that's what it looks like these days, and that's really putting our subjectivity at risk in some ways, uh, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. Um, in, in other words, resisting the reactionary movement um, towards, um, say, uh, racial justice in retreating to defending our own race privileges or our class privileges. I think this is something that uh, is in, important for us to do individually and collectively and think about um, uh, not just putting our subjectivity at risk in a negative way um, even though it could be understood as part of that but it's also like um, allowing our, our subject positions to expand and grow and benefit from conditions of racial justice and gender and sexual justice. I think this is really crucial. So that's how I think about it. Um, to escape from this from this doom spiral mm. of re republicanism becoming ever more openly anti-democratic, authoritarian, conspiratorial, and working with these new emerging technologies of surveillance, of militarism, of AI, to entrench further inequality. Like how can we um, transform ourselves into um, uh, a non-authoritarian, um, anti-oppressive subjectivity that is consciously anti-racist. And that doesn't mean escaping from conditions of uh, that we were born with and the privileges that some of us were born into, but recognizing them, disidentifying from them, and contributing to building uh, new articulations, new imaginations around um, multiracial justice. Um, that's, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm proposing uh, that radical futurisms ultimately necessitate putting our subjectivities at risk. Right. That's awesome. Okay, last question. <laughs> and it's a question I like to ask all my guests, and that is, uh, what books, I know you've mentioned several books, but what books or ideas or thinkers, art, films, what's capturing your attention these days? 
Um, yeah, there's there's a, a few things I'll mention um, in addition to some of the, the references that I already um, cited. Uh, one is um, there's an HBO series called The Last of Us, hmm. just to get into like popular culture. Uh, it's a post-apocalyptic uh, series dedicated to this uh, near future in which um, there's a, like a fungal viral in, infection that overtakes the earth. Um, and so it leads to a post-apocalyptic tale of some survivors who are trying to figure out um, uh, how to live under these conditions. And I, I won't give anything away, but there, there's some really interesting positive expressions that are explicit about, uh, for instance, communism. Um, that this is a term that you that you basically never would hear um, within Netflix or HBO or you know dominant U.S. based um, media. So I, th I found that really interesting. Like maybe we're, we're starting to cross a threshold where uh, terms that were once uh, impossible to even um, articulate and and frame positively, like to discuss positively, are coming up. You know, maybe huh? Maybe that is something that we need to take seriously um, and not understand it in the old ways of like Stalinist authoritarianism. But what would it mean to live in a community um, of mutual support, of solidarity, of where the well-being of all is necessity, um, where we're escape, escaping from competitive individualism and toxic masculinity, um, all that stuff uh, that is, you know, part and parcel of the culture of racial colonial capitalism. It's a really interesting series. I recommend it um, uh, that came out last year. A couple books that I'm reading. One is, um, you might be interested in this, Psychoanalysis Under Occupation, hmm. uh, Practicing Resistance in Palestine by Lara Sheehy and Stephen Sheehy. Um, I'm, I'm finding it really interesting to look at how <clears throat> people are thinking about um, subjectivity and politics under conditions of military occupation within settler colonialism. Um, so that's a it's a really interesting um, uh, book. There's there's part um, uh, a, a long-standing interest of mine within pa Palestinian liberation politics, and how that leads to um, further understandings of internationalizing solidarity, um, and thinking about it uh, within contexts of um, current day settler colonial states outside of the U.S., but certainly is you know structurally connected to it. So that's, that's a really interesting read. There was recently a, a Guardian um, uh, uh, article on Lara Sheehy, who has lots of uh, involvement in uh, psychoanalytic associations within the, the U.S. So there's lots of politics going on within the U.S. Uh, in relationship to ways of thinking about uh, Palestine, um, the specter of anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. all of the, the dangers and risks of instrumentalizing that term against critics of Israel. It raises all sorts of difficult, challenging, complex issues, but um, mm -hmm. really worth looking at. And then finally, um, another book that I that I mentioned is um, uh, well, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll I'll cite another one. Matt Huber's book called "Climate Change's Class War," uh, which I I find really interesting and um, compelling, based on the idea that um, it's time to return to and, and rethink class. Uh, it's something that's been largely expelled from lots of political discourse. <clears throat> but what does it mean to think about specifically climate change in relationship to, to class problems? Um, and specifically, for instance, overcoming 
the long-standing bind between you know jobs versus the environment clearly that's been really debilitating and has present prevented forms of solidarity to take place between uh, labor organizing and environmental organizing because we're in this economy of imposed scarcity um, so that we're we're led to you know by political and economic elites to believe that we can't possibly have good jobs and um, environmental sustainability mm -hmm. but in fact that has to be the beginning of our demands we have to have both uh, clearly um, to make any progress in relationship to environmentalism we have to have labor uh, on board uh, we have to have a just transition and a workers green new deal that prioritizes the transition of people into new lines of work if they're ever to leave the uh, fossil fuel economy mm -hmm. and not fall into like fascist reaction because they think liberal elites in washington want to take away their jobs so how can we you know have um, a, a new theorization of environmental politics through the lens of class matt huber is doing that in in, in this book climate change is class war I, I i highly recommend it wonderful Great suggestions. Uh, thank you for that. And thank you for everything. I really appreciate you taking the time and sharing with us and our listeners today. And um, it's just been really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. All right. That's our show. Thanks for listening, as always. And I hope you got out of that what I did. I mean, I know that was a that's a thinker, that one. So, um, But hopefully it uh, inspired you and had you thinking about, you know, I mean, what's about world building beyond our present, world building beyond our present. So anyway, you know, come find me on the social medias. Uh, well, first, please rate and review the show wherever you're listening to it from. That's how we get out in front of people. But please kind of find me on the socials, too. There's the Radical Therapist on Instagram. I'm now on threads. Uh, you know, see how that goes. But uh, if you're on threads, come come find the Radical Therapist. And uh, there's a Facebook page, of course. Come find that. And you can email me at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. I do appreciate getting your emails. Please, if you have a guest suggestion or stuff like that, love it. Love to hear from you. Uh, that would be great. All right. So that's it. As always, thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>